Good morning. It is good to be back with you. I am so thankful for the week that we were able to spend as a family being refreshed by what I would consider one of God's greatest miracles of creation. We love being at the ocean. I find it to be a place of relaxation and refreshment and just reconnection there, not only with our family, but even with the Lord and just uh, admiring uh, His handiwork. Uh, But it's good to be back with you. I'm excited about this new series that we're going to be doing, speaking of miracles. Uh, We're going to be talking about miracles throughout the month of August, and I'm really looking forward to it. I think this is a fascinating subject, uh, not only because of the subject matter itself is, is inspiring, but it's also at times challenging because we have maybe certain ideas of what miracles are or what our expectations might be, and, and sometimes there's tensions in our faith over those things, and hopefully we'll get the chance to explore some of those things today and throughout this month, and my prayer is that it will be helpful, inspiring, but also as we delve into some of the challenging thoughts about miracles that uh, it will be helpful to, to each one of you. I was, I was listening to K-Love uh, a couple weeks ago uh, on the radio, Christian music radio, and they, one of the, the DJs uh, was telling a story of George Mueller, and some of you may be familiar with that name. George Mueller was a missionary. He was an evangelist. He started an orphanage in England, in Bristol, England, back in the 1800s. An incredible guy, an incredible man of faith. Uh, and the story was told of one morning he, he got up at the orphanage and gathered the children together for breakfast. But he had no food, and he had no money to go buy food. But he gathered the children of the orphanage together for breakfast, and he prayed with them. And the prayer was, was this. Dear Father, we thank you for what you are going to give us to eat. He had no food, no money to go buy food, and he stood there with these kids thanking God for the food that God was going to provide. That's incredible, right? Not long after he said amen, there was a knock on the orphanage door. And it was a local baker. And the local baker said, uh, last night I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep and it felt like the Lord wanted me to get up and make you bread. And so he got up at 2 a.m. because he couldn't sleep and he couldn't get this thought out of his mind that that the Lord wanted him to get up and bake bread for the orphanage. And so that's what he did and he delivered the bread. And now if that doesn't send chills up the back of your neck, as soon as that interaction was over, another knock at the door happened. It was the local milkman. And the local milkman said, uh, excuse me, uh, my milk cart, remember this is 1800s, right? So my milk cart broke down right outside of your orphanage. And I can't just fix it without unloading all of the milk. Do you think your children would come and help unload the milk and they can have the milk because it's probably going to spoil if, if, they don't, if they don't use it. By the time I'm done fixing the car, it's not going to be any good. Do you think your kids could help me unload it and, and enjoy the milk? What? So God provided bread. God provided milk. 
And all the, all the while, there George Mueller is praying, thanking God before that miracle ever happened. That's inspiring, but it's also, to be quite honest, it's challenging to me. It's challenging to me uh, as, as I listened to that story and I looked it up. I was like, this can't be, this can't be accurate. They, they had to get these details wrong. I looked it up and, and uh, found a number of different sources of, of uh, this particular uh, account in, in George Mueller's life. And, and as I'm reading those accounts, some more details about it, I'm thinking two things. Number one, I thought, what an incredible miracle of God. I mean, it's amazing to me how God used ordinary people to answer a prayer in a miraculous way. Could God have just made bread and milk appear out of nowhere? Sure, God could do that. He's God. But that's not what God did. God used ordinary people. And it seems, from the account of the story, it seems as though the baker was kind of in on it in the sense that he, he knew that it was the Lord who was prompting his heart to make the bread for the kids. So I think on some level, the, the, the local baker at least kind of felt like God was providing for these children through him. But I wonder about the milkman. There's no evidence, in this, at least in the story account, that the milkman realized what God was doing. All he knew was his cart broke down. And God used that, God used him in a way to perform a miracle. And you're like, okay, that's just coincidence. And, and I would push back and say, uh, you mean to tell me it's just coincidence that as he's standing there praying and asking God for this, that of all the places the milk cart could have broken down, that's where it broke down? I would push back on the idea of this was just happenstance. And what part of the, the, the part of that story that I think really challenged me to think about what, what God might be doing on my bad day. Do you ever have a bad day? We got home from vacation last night. A seven-hour trip took 11 hours because of traffic. We're tired, a little grumpy. And just as, before we went to bed, and we're, you, know, you, you have your kind of ritual before bed, you do. Our toilet decided it wasn't going to work. And my wife looks at me, and she expects me to fix it at 10 o'clock at night. You ever have a bad day? And this, this part of the story, I'll let that hang. You have no idea what happened with my toy, and I'm not even going to tell you. All right? I'm just going to let that hang there. You won't hear the rest of the message. You're like, what happened to his toilet? I wonder sometimes when I'm having a bad day, and, and put yourself in the same situation. Your milk cart breaks down. I wonder sometimes if when I'm having a bad day, if I just need to stop, look around, pray and wonder, who is it, God, that you want to bless? Is there some, someone that you want to bless in my mess? That inspired me, but that part of the story certainly challenged me because I don't know that I automatically do that. So I, I was inspired by the incredible miracle of God, a little bit challenged by it, to be honest with you. But the second thing I thought of when I heard that story, what incredible faith that George Mueller had. He prayed and gave thanks to God for a miracle that had not yet happened. He was still waiting 
for God to provide the miracle. And that certainly inspires my faith, but can I be honest? That challenges me too. Do I do that? I wonder if you've ever found yourself in a situation. You, you prayed for a miracle. And then, after you prayed for that miracle, you felt that tension in your faith of waiting to see what God would do. Waiting for that miracle. Now, it's possible that you're sitting here this morning and you don't believe in miracles. If you don't believe that God exists, then the idea of miracles obviously is going to sound ridiculous. If you believe that God exists, but you also believe that God is disconnected from our world, and there's lots of people that think that, that God set in motion the, 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 uh, the laws of nature and order, set it all in motion, and then step back to just watch it from a distance, disconnected from all that he has created. There are people who believe that about God. And if that's what you believe about God, that he has this hands-off approach to creation, well, then the idea of a miracle sounds like fairy tales. It sounds like silly, wishful thinking. And I just want you to know, if that's where you're at this morning, maybe, maybe you're here or maybe you're, uh, you're going to see this online later on, you're looking for something more in life than what you're experiencing and so you decided, well, nothing else seems to be working. I guess I'll go hang out with a bunch of weird Christian churchgoers and see if that, maybe there's something there. I just want you to know we're thrilled that you're here. I just want you to know that we're, we're thrilled that you're with us today. And, and we're praying. We're praying that, that God will use this series to, to soften your heart, that God will use this series perhaps to reveal himself to you in a, in a very real way and awaken faith in your soul. But if you do believe that God exists and you do believe that God performs miracles, I think there's still lots of really interesting, fascinating, sometimes, quite honestly, difficult questions for us to explore together. So let's just start with the first. Let's start with a baseline, a simple one. What is a miracle? It's kind of hard to go through a month-long series of a topic about miracles and not all be on the same page of what we mean by that. What's a miracle? Let's say uh, you have a person in your life who is always late. Do you have someone? Don't point them out. Do you have someone in your life who is always late? And that one time they show up on time or they show up a few minutes early and you're like, well, well, well. It's a miracle. Look who showed up on time. Is that what we're talking about? Is that a miracle? When someone doesn't study for the big exam, they walk into the classroom unprepared, and then they pray, Lord, I need a miracle. Is that what we're talking about? I read a bunch of different Bible scholars' definitions of what a miracle is. I like this one. This might be better ones. I like this one. A miracle is an event that involves the direct and powerful action of God. 
That's a pretty good definition. An event that involves the direct and powerful action of God. So it's not happenstance. It's not random chance. This is God actively intervening in a situation. It's also transcending the ordinary laws of nature. And I think that's important too. This is not something that can be explained by science or explained away. Sometimes you see that on History Channel, Discovery Channel, whatever. You see uh, the, they talk about Egypt and, and the, the miracles that took place in, in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, and, and they're just desperate to be able to come up with a scientific explanation of the parting of the Red Sea. Well, a miracle is an event that involves the direct and powerful action of God transcending the ordinary laws of nature. And you're like, oh, that's, that kind of makes my head hurt this early in the morning. What does that mean? Let me unpack it a little bit more. It means that, that God has created the universe with natural laws. God has created the universe with order. For example, the earth revolves around the sun, and it also is on a certain angle, and it rotates at a certain speed in itself. As it spins on its axis, it rotates, revolves rather, around the sun at a certain speed. And the moon uh, revolves around the earth. And all of these things impact the laws of gravity. God has put order into the universe that he has created, and they impact certain natural laws. It was thought for a long, long time that if you took two stones, a small stone and a large stone, and you dropped them from a certain height, that the large stone would hit the ground first because it's heavier, of greater mass. And everyone just assumed, well, that makes sense, until someone actually tested it, and they found that, no, they hit the ground at the same time. Why is that? It's the loss of gravity. The laws of thermodynamics are similar God has placed order in his creation. The things that are in motion tend to stay in motion. It's why you and I have to wear seatbelts when we're in the car in case we bump into something. We don't fly out through the windshield. So God has put certain things in order in his creation, but sometimes God chooses to actively operate either outside of or intervene into the very natural laws that he has created. And he's free to do so because he's God. And that's what we call a miracle. A miracle is when God does something that cannot be explained by science. We don't need to go looking for a scientific explanation for everything. Sometimes it's God doing something that is outside or or, or breaks his own laws of, of the natural order. Now, why would he do that? Well, sometimes the purpose of a miracle is to reveal himself to us as real. You think about some of the, we'll go back to Egypt, when Moses, uh, through, miracles were performed through Moses. Uh, many of those miracles were demonstrating to the Hebrew slaves, to Pharaoh, that God is real. Sometimes the purpose of a miracle is to reveal something about God's character to us. You go to the New Testament, especially, you see many of the, the, 
miracles that Jesus performed, yes, they demonstrate his divinity. Yes, they demonstrate that Jesus is God. But many of those, uh, those miracles demonstrate his love, his compassion for people, which uh, tells us something about the character, about the nature of who God is. Sometimes miracles are to reveal God's purposes and God's plans. Sometimes they are to validate his messengers and his divine message through those messengers like the prophets. Sometimes a purpose of a miracle is just to, to provide uh, evidence of the power of God and his presence in the world that we live in, that he's not disconnected, that he's not detached from his creation, but he is actively involved in, in the world that we live in and in our lives. And there's tons of examples of miracles recorded throughout the Bible, all the way from creation to the resurrection of Jesus. But what I'd like to do in this series, I'd like to focus in on the miracles of Jesus. We'll take a month and we're going to look at some of the miracles of Jesus. You know, there's 37 recorded miracles of Jesus in the New Testament. And that's not all of them. That's just the ones that have been recorded. In fact, the apostle John, at the end of his gospel, he wrote this. It's on the screen. He said, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So if there's 37 recorded miracles of Jesus, I, uh, I did a little, bit of, uh, a little bit of math. If we, if we break that out over 37 weeks, it almost takes us to Resurrection Sunday in 2024. So we could, do all, we could study almost all of them over the next 37 weeks. But I know you really want to get back to our series in the fall about majoring on the minors. So we're just going to talk about a few of these miracles throughout the month of August. And I'd like to start with this tension point. I'd like to start with the tension point that you and I feel in our faith when we pray and we ask God for a miracle. And then there's this tension of waiting, waiting for the miracle. Whether, whether it's a serious health problem, it's a financial crisis that you're experiencing, or it's a relationship that is just blown apart I think we all know the feeling, the, the feeling of almost desperation in the dark and, and painful, scary seasons of life when we have prayed for a miracle and then live in the tension of waiting to see what God will do. Will God provide the miracle that we've asked for in the time in which we've asked for it? Or will God do something different? Will God perhaps use our situation to do something, maybe not even in our own life, but in the lives of people around us, what is God going to do? We don't know, and we live in that tension of faith. Quick survey. How many of us, show of hands, own it, how many of us love to wait? You love it. I love to wait. Super patience, that's your thing. Not a lot of hands. All right. How about uncertainty? How many of us love uncertainty? My favorite thing is uncertainty. Show of hands. All right. I kind of expected that. Here's some good news, though. You and I don't have to enjoy 
uncertainty in life. We don't have to enjoy waiting. We don't have to enjoy tensions in our faith to believe that God loves us. We don't have to enjoy the uncertainty and that tension to believe that God is at work in our situation to accomplish his good purposes. If you would, please join me in John chapter 11. This is the miracle that we're going to look at together today, John chapter 11. It's what I would describe as my second favorite miracle resurrection story. The resurrection of Jesus is my favorite miracle resurrection story because it's the power to save our soul from sin and hell. So that for sure is my favorite. But my second favorite miracle resurrection story is this story of Lazarus in John chapter 11 for a couple reasons. One, it's an amazing story. and uh, This miracle of someone being raised from the dead is pretty incredible in and of itself. But there's another reason why I love this story. Because in this story, it's not just about Lazarus. In fact, he, his story is kind of at the beginning and at the end. He dies. Jesus raises him back to life, which is super cool. But in the middle of that, we, we hear the story, we learn the story of a woman named Martha and her sister Mary. And there's some amazing things that we can learn from her story, from Martha's story, because she dealt with the tension of asking Jesus for a miracle and then waiting for the miracle. And you ready for it? Not receiving the miracle that she asked for in the time in which she asked for. And she had to be able to process that in her faith. She felt that tension. She lived through it. And there's some fascinating things I think we can learn from her example. So let's start off the story in John chapter 11, verse 1. There's this man named Lazarus, and he's sick. So there's the baseline for our story. Lazarus is sick. Not with a common cold. He's really sick. He is dying. We're not told what it was, but whatever it is, he's very sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. Now, they, uh, John clarifies the Mary that we're talking about. Uh, this matters maybe in a different story, but verse 2, this is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet, wiped them with her hair, and it's her brother. Her brother, Lazarus, was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very Sick, depending on the version that you have uh, with you today, it might say the one that the Lord loves, the one you love, Lord. And it just tells us, it gives us a little insight into their relationship, the relationship with Jesus and this family. Apparently it was close enough where that's how they defined the relationship. The one that you love, your dear friend, Lazarus, is very sick. And the implication there is we're asking you to come and make him well. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. Hmm. So although Jesus loved Martha, he loved Mary, he loved Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. And then finally he said to his disciples, let's go back 
to Judea. So we, we know that Jesus was close to this family, close friends with them. And I, I, I think it's fascinating that the one phrase, that's, if it's translated correctly, uh, the one that you love, there's definitely this, this expectation that uh, they're saying, this is your dear friend, we have this relationship, you, you love us, we love you, we're asking you to come, we're asking you to do something, we're asking you to intervene because you love us, right? And I wonder if you've ever had that thought. I wonder if you've ever prayed that type of prayer. God, if you really love me, you'll grant me this miracle. Or maybe on the other side of that, well, God didn't answer my prayer the way that I wanted him to, in the time that I wanted him to do it, I wonder if he really loves me. You know, I, I absolutely love my children. I love my children with a deep, unrelenting love, but I don't give them everything they ask for. And it's not because... Uh, that I don't think, I don't think it's because I'm mean. I think it's because I, think it's because I love them. And, and that requires discernment. That requires wisdom. That sometimes requires a little self-control because as a dad, I really want to give as much as I can. But sometimes it's not good. When, when I was teaching my oldest daughter, Hannah, how to drive, uh, She's not in the room, so I can say this to you, just don't tell her. She, she's a terrible driver. <laughs> she's gotten better. But uh, it's, not, it's, not, it wasn't, it's not a natural talent, not a natural gift. My son Elijah, naturally gifted at that. Some of you are. But it was, it, was, it was tough teaching her how to drive. The parallel parking, there was a lot of tears shed over parallel parking. Well, something else that my daughter really struggled with was just knowing how to get from point A to point B. Like she didn't know how to get there. And I'm talking about like from our home in Roaring Spring to Altoona and back, she had no clue how to get there. And so one, one night we went into Altoona to a restaurant for dinner. And when we were done, we got in the car. I gave her the keys. She's in the driver's seat. I was in the passenger seat. And I said, okay drive us home. And she looked at me and she said, Daddy, I don't, I don't know how to get home from here. I need you to guide me. I, I need you to show me how to get home. And I looked at her and I said, no, you're going to have to figure it out. Go to the stoplight, make a right or make a left. It's going to take us somewhere, and hopefully at some point you'll recognize something before we get to the next state. That's what I'm praying. That's what I'm hoping is going to happen here. It's not the guidance that she asked for. It's not the guidance that she wanted, but it was the guidance that I believed that she needed. You can judge me if you want. You're a terrible dad. Fine, if you want to judge me that way. Here's what I do know. What I do know is now my daughter not only knows how to get to Altoona and back, she can go to Lancaster Bible College and navigate that, uh, that city on her own. 
I did that not because I wanted to be mean to her, not because I wanted to demean her or demoralize her. I did that because I love her. You know, when we're waiting on a miracle, it can be hard, and we may not always understand what God's doing or what He's not doing. But we can always have confidence that Jesus never stops loving us. And here's the thing. God doesn't need to provide an immediate answer to our request for a miracle in order to prove his love for us. He's already proved his love for us. When Jesus died on the cross for us, that's all the proof we need that God loves us. He's willing to die for us the most torturous, inhumane death imaginable for us so that we could be forgiven of sin and made right with God. He's already proved that he loved us. He doesn't have to give us everything we ask for to prove that he loves us. Go back to the story. You see here in verse four, he has a reason why he didn't leave. What's the reason? Well, he's gonna give, he's gonna bring glory to God. There's another reason that we'll find out later on, but the primary reason here to bring glory to God. Whatever he's up to, whatever he's going to do in this, the reason he's waiting is to bring glory to God. We read on. Finally, he says to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. His disciples said, no. Rabbi, no. Only a few days ago, people in Judea were trying to stone you. You're going to go there again? And Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Now later, you can pick that apart a little bit and see what he's really trying to get at is uh, that he's the light. You have to read kind of the whole book of John to kind of get what he's getting at here. He's the light, and he's with them for a, a season. He's not going to be with them forever, physically, on the earth. And while he's here, he's the light, right? So we, we can unpack that later. But he says here in verse 11, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. And the disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll soon get better. They're still saying, Let's, this is a bad idea. Let's not go back to Judea. It's not safe. It's too much of a risk. If he's, if he's just sleeping, he'll, he'll be fine in a few days. Just, let's just hang out here where it's safe. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus, no, he meant that Lazarus had, had died. And so he told them plainly, guys, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. Here's the second reason this is happening. For now, you will really believe. Come on now, let's see him. So there's the glory of God reason to bring glory to God in, in this uh, demonstration of God's power over death. But it's also to, to reveal that Jesus is who he says he is, to validate this message that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, so that they will really believe it. I think this also, again, demonstrates the love of Jesus. This is a risky thing to go back to Judea, but he does Yes, to bring glory to God. Yes, to demonstrate God's power and, and, and to uh, validate who he is as God's son. But it also demonstrates his love. He's willing to go back and minister to this family in a risky place where he, 
uh, could very well be and does eventually get arrested and put on a cross. We read on. Go down to verse 17. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in the grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. Mary stayed in the house. Now, we find out later on it wasn't because she had an attitude problem. Nobody told her. They told Martha. Martha went out to meet him. Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, just put yourself in the moment. She goes out to meet Jesus. Her interaction with him is not, how was your trip? Did you, did you have a safe trip? Uh, are, are you tired? Was there bad traffic? Uh, would you like some potato salad? We have a ton of it from the funeral people that came. No, it was, it was very direct, and she expresses directly in honesty her hurt, her disappointment, her frustration, her confusion. And I wonder, if we just pause on that moment, and think about what she's saying and how she went out to Jesus and she just, she was just direct and honest about how she was feeling about the situation. If you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Where were you? Why didn't you come? It causes me to ask the question, what happens to our faith when we beg God to do a miracle and we don't get the miracle that we asked for? And I'm not talking about superficial prayers like, dear Lord, please make a Corvette magically appear in my driveway. I'm not talking about that. Or, or dear Lord, please, as I waste my money on the Powerball, help me, help me to win. Right? I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about the, the kind of, of uh, prayers that we sometimes pray you know, where uh, you got Johnny on, on one football team and he's praying, dear Lord, help us to beat this other team. And you got some other Christian kid that loves Jesus on the other team. Dear Lord, please help us to beat this other team. You know, those, those kind of things. Uh, it's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that moment in your life when you cried out to God. And you begged him in urgency. You pleaded with him in this desperate need. And, and in your heart, you prayed, Lord, please show up. I'm begging you. I need you to show up. And nothing. Like Martha in that moment, you don't understand why. But when I look at Martha, her heart attitude is that of, Lord, I I love you. And we see that throughout her conversation. We'll get into a few more of the things that she says. She says, I, I love you. But I don't understand why you didn't show up. I needed you to show up. I needed you to do this miracle, and you didn't do it. And I don't get it. And I'm, I'm genuinely curious of, of what happens to our faith in those moments. How are we supposed to spiritually process through that disappointment? 
When I look at Martha's example, here's the first thing I notice. The first thing I notice in her example is she did not let her disappointment or the tension in her faith distance her from Jesus. Do you notice? She went out to Jesus. Now, she was honest. She was direct about her pain and, and, and her disappointment, her confusion. But she went out to meet Jesus. She did not let those emotions break her relationship with Jesus. She didn't have this heart attitude that says, you know what? I tried the whole prayer thing. It didn't work. Uh, I, I want nothing to do with Jesus. He doesn't do what I want him to do, so I'm done. I'm out. That's not what she does. She did not let her disappointment or the tension in her faith distance her in her relationship with Jesus. And it's a, it's a choice that you and I have to make. Every time we go through a trial in life, we have to make a choice. Either we're going to move towards Jesus and trust that he loves us, or we're going to move away from Jesus because we don't trust that he loves us. Don't let disappointment, don't let the tension of, of these moments when we pray for a miracle and we're not sure what's going to happen, don't let that distance you from Jesus. Let it move you towards him. And the second thing I notice about Martha is that she did not let this disappointment or this tension in her faith destroy her faith. Go back to verse 23. Look at this exchange. <laughs> Uh, she says, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. The implication there is, uh, I believe you could have healed him. If you want, you could raise him from the dead. That's how, what's being implied in that. And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And she receives that comment this way. Yes, I, I know. I know he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. She believes in the resurrection at the end of time. We don't have time to get into all the implications of that this morning, but she believes that the faith will be raised in a, in a resurrection. So that's, I believe that. And then Jesus tells her, I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying, everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? And her response is yes. Yes, Lord, I, I've always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into, or come into the world from God. And then she's the one that goes in and pulls Mary aside and says, hey, Jesus here, he wants to talk to you. But Martha's faith was not rattled. It was not destroyed by her disappointment or this tension in her faith. She didn't understand why Jesus didn't come sooner. She didn't understand why Jesus didn't even heal him remotely. But her faith in Jesus was not rattled. It wasn't destroyed. I find it fascinating as the story unfolds. She wasn't at some point in, in, in this whole thing, she wasn't, she was no longer waiting for the miracle that she asked for. And here's how I know that. As the story unfolds, uh, Jesus talks with Mary, has a very similar conversation with her, why weren't you here, and all this. And, and then he says, Let, let's go out to the, the tomb. And he says, move the stone away. Move the stone away. And if you 
if you look at verse 39, when Jesus tells them to move the stone away, he knows who he's about to. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And in the rest of verse 39, Martha says, no, no, don't do that. Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. It'd be stanky in there. Don't roll the stone away. That's a paraphrased version of the stanky part. That's not there in the text. I read that part, and this is just how my mind works. I'm, I'm imagining Lazarus' reaction to this whole thing. Lazarus' reaction when he heard the voice of Jesus calling him back from heaven, back to this world. And there's a part of me, and I don't know how it all works, right? We're not told how it all worked on the other side of this life, but there's a part of me that kind of hopes that someone, that someone pulled him aside before this when he got to heaven and said, hey, first of all, welcome to heaven. We're so glad you're here. This is Festus the angel. He'll help you get settled in. But don't get too comfortable, just a little FYI. In four days, you've got to leave heaven and go back. Go back to the corrupt world you just left where you'll have to die again. Hope you have a great day. That's probably not, not how it happened. I know how I feel on the way home from vacation when I'm at the beach. You know, it's Friday. It's like, oh, we've got to pack up. This, this was heaven. He had to leave heaven. Anyway, if I go back to Martha and I look at how she reacts in that moment, Jesus says, roll the stone away. It's obvious what's about to happen. And yet in that moment, even though just, I don't know how many minutes had passed between the two conversations, but she had implied, Lord, if you'd have come, you could have healed him. But even now, you can do anything. It's implied in what she said that she believes he can raise Lazarus from the dead. But yet when we get to this part of the story, she's, no, 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 don't do that. He's been dead for four days. She's no longer thinking about her, uh, the miracle that she requested being granted. But if we look at the full conversation, she is fully confident by faith in a future miracle of the resurrection for the faithful. And here's my point. Martha refused to let her disappointment distance her from Jesus or destroy her faith. Her love for Jesus, her trust in Jesus was not contingent on whether or not Jesus gave her the miracle she asked for in the time that she asked for it. It wasn't dependent on that. She still loved Jesus and she still trusted him. And so for me, this story is like the story of George Mueller. I'm, I'm inspired by what I read, by their faith, and as they waited for a miracle that had not yet happened yet, and yet at the same time, I am challenged by this. Their faith, their gratitude were not contingent on, they were not dependent on whether or not God gave them what they asked for in the timeline that they asked for it. They trusted the Lord no matter what. And it forces me to ask the question, is that true of my heart? Is that true of your heart? There's nothing wrong with praying by faith for a miracle. God's ability to demonstrate his power and his love through miracles has not diminished over time. 
His miracle-working power is still at full measure even at this very moment. But even as we pray for a miracle, for, for God to intervene into our situation right now, we must never lose sight of the greatest and most important miracle that is 100% guaranteed. Go back to verse 25. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. And then he asked this question, do you believe this? If we truly believe in the miracle of eternal life, through faith in Jesus Christ, then our hope, our confident hope in an in a existence throughout eternity of, of no more death, of no more sickness, of no more sorrow or pain, that is absolutely 100% something we can wait for with assurance and confidence through our faith in Jesus Christ to keep his promise. If we truly believe in this miracle of eternal life through faith in Jesus, yes, to forgive